Hello, Overcomers, and welcome to this episode of Connect Over Coffee. I'm Runsi, the founder of Overcome, and today we are joined by our esteemed and special guest, Dr. Kathleen Moore. So Dr. Moore is the uh, Virginia Curly Cade Endowed Chair in Cancer Development and Professor of Gynecologic Oncology at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center. She also serves as the Associate Director of Clinical Research and the Director of the Oklahoma TC phase one program at the Stevenson Cancer Center. Her primary areas of interest include drug development and phase one clinical trials. Considered one of the top global experts in the field of gynecologic oncology, Dr. Moore is renowned for her commitment to advancing care and outcomes for all our overcomers worldwide. So join us for the next 45 minutes to an hour as we chat with Dr. Moore about platinum sensitive as well as resistant ovarian cancers, PARP inhibitors, as well as palliative and hospice care. And so this is the coffee hour chat. So grab your favorite coffee. I have mine and join us for this discussion. And as I always, there you go. And as I always say, please share this video far and wide with anyone who may benefit from all these great insights Dr. Moore is about to share with us today. And if you have any questions as we go along, please type in the comment sections below and we'll get it addressed post the discussion. So with that, a huge welcome to you, Dr. Moore, to this episode of Connect Over Coffee. Such an honor to have you with us. Thanks for having me. This should be fun. Thank you. So um, several questions, but uh, before we get along to the, you know, in depth, I had a question about you about the platinum resistant and the platinum sensitive ovarian cancers. We often hear about these two terms. So are these the only two categories that all ovarian cancers can be or should be classified uh, um, as? So tell us a little more about these two broad classifications and how and why are they classified as such? So that is a great question. I'm gonna give you the kind of textbook answer and then I'm gonna give you sort of the nuanced answer. Uh, when we talk about tumors that are platinum sensitive or platinum resistant, in large part, we're referring to tumors that have recurred. It's not entirely true, I'll come back to that, but the classic definition for those two terms is applied to tumors that have recurred. Uh, and so for uh, tumors that recur more than six months after the last platinum exposure, and platinum is carboplatin or cisplatin, those tumors are classified historically as sensitive to platinum, platinum sensitive. And those tumors that progress either during or within six months of that last platinum chemotherapy are termed resistant to platinum or platinum resistant. And those terms were developed in the 90s uh, in an era where number one, we did not have many active chemotherapies to use outside of platinum. Uh, and so the outcomes, you know, the reason they were, they were determined or they were defined is to sort of identify tumors that should be retreated with platinum and tumors that shouldn't be retreated with platinum based on the response to platinum in those in both of those lines. And so the patients that had less than six months didn't respond very well to platinum. And so they were sort of put into this um, kind of pathway of not reusing platinum and those that were more than six months got platinum. Uh, and that's how we define, and that kind of set the stage for how clinical trials were designed even to today. Mm -hmm. So that's so when you and so when you hear that term, that's still what we're talking about. But it's a much more nuanced discussion now. And how we think of clinical trials is done for a certain way that's appropriate. You have to have for clinical trials groups of tumors, groups of patients that are kind of like one another if you're going to compare them, you know, like in a randomized study. But in clinical practice, you know, we think about things a little bit differently. And so when we think about these terms the six month cut point was very much um, arbitrary. Mm -hmm. There's no magic to six months. You, know, if you could be five and a half months or you could be eight months. And you know that just could be a factor of when I get a CAT scan, or when I image the, uh, my patient. Now this person I image is seven months, so she's platinum sensitive. This person I image 
at five months and three weeks. So she's platinum resistant. Well, that's just silly. Like we just know that biologically that makes no sense. There's nothing magic that happens at six months. And so newer, there are attempts to do better in terms of how we characterize tumors in a modern era, really based on more nuanced um, clinical characteristics, which gets harder. So for example, um, if you had a tumor that got a platinum, maybe they had recurred, got it, it was exposed to a platinum, and it didn't really shrink that much, but didn't grow. And then maybe there was um, avastin or bevacizumab abused as a maintenance with the chemo and after. And so maybe that patient's tumor grew eight months later. So they're platinum sensitive, but are they really? Because they, the tumor didn't shrink to the platinum. It didn't really respond, it just didn't grow. And that's very different than a tumor that just melts away. I've seen this happen. I give platinum in the recurrent setting, tumor melts away, complete response. And I'm like, oh, awesome. And maybe well, I don't use a maintenance there. And five months later, it grows back. Mm -hmm. I'm much more likely to reuse platinum in that patient and not stop it again than I am in the other patient who's technically platinum sensitive. So you have to pay attention to the response to prior platinum. It's not just the interval from prior platinum. What, did they, what was the response? Did it work or not? One. And two, I think we'll talk about this through this conversation is, again, those definitions were in the 90s. Now we have tumors that are exposed to PARP inhibitors mm -hmm. in the front line as maintenance. And so does that, in those, in those intervals of time, those six months historically were patients who were not treated with any maintenance. That wasn't a thing then. So you got your platinum and then you just were observation, close monitoring, and then you recurred at whatever time. Now we're using maintenance, PARP inhibitors, bevacizumab um, or avastin, for those of you just so you know what I'm talking about, uh, or both. So how does that change what the likelihood is of responding to your next platinum and, and identifying a tumor that's going to be sensitive to platinum again or not is very different. So you have to look at how you responded to the last platinum, how what that tumor has been um, uh, exposed to, if anything, you know, during that time period. Uh, and then all the other things that, you know, the histology, there's serous, and there's all the other types of ovarian cancer. And that is important in terms of our expectations of response to the next line of therapy. So, so it's a very, it's a much more nuanced thought process than just greater than less than six months. Like that's, that's a, a very, it's, it's a line in the sand that exists for clinical trials, but it's not how we really think about a patient in front of you and her tumor and how we're going to treat it. It's part of it, but it's not the defining thing, I would say. Thank you so very much for unpacking this for us because, you know, what a way to start our conversation. This was fantastic. And so um, I, what I heard you say is, you know, obviously with advances in medicine, these classifications that were uh, used in the 90s, that has, you know, it has evolved much over time. And also to some extent, you also probably mentioned personalized, you know, medicine um, to a large extent, which has kind of changed the way these resistant versus sensitive mm -hmm. cancers were classified. So thank you for sharing that information with us. So your primary interest lies in new drug development and clinical trials. So tell us more about uh, your interest and what are some of the trials or developmental work that you're leading and or involved in? Uh, where to start? Uh, so it's my whole job. So I'm very, very privileged. Um, my whole job is really in clinical trials and, and drug development. So, you know, almost all the, the women, people I take care of with uh, all gynecologic cancers, not all of them, but the vast majority are on clinical trials or kind of coming on and off clinical trials. So there's a lot of things that I'm involved in. I think um, uh, the uh, work in PARP inhibitors continues to evolve. Uh, as we are now have moved PARP inhibitors into the front line appropriately. Uh, I was very fortunate to lead SOLA1, which was really the first big study to report out using PARP inhibitor here, uh, Limparza or Laparib 
I don't know if I can use trade names or not. I think our patients recognize the trade names better than the, the um, generic names. So I'll use both. So Limparza following response to chemotherapy in the front line, which is the first time that had been done, but only in that study, only in uh, women with BRCA associated cancers. Uh, and that initial report decreased what we call the risk of recurrence by 70%. Uh, and we've reported that out to five years and that has been maintained. And uh, I can tell you, we will be reporting out a seven year landmark uh, in the September at the European uh, Society of Medical Oncology, my co-PI Paul DiSilvestro will be presenting a seven year landmark of overall survival. So I can't tell you what the results are yet other than they're good. Um, and, uh, and I believe that for a fraction of people with ovarian cancer that are BRC associated, we are moving more of them to cure. So, so I think we will see prolonged overall survival, which is always wonderful. And we, we actually aren't reporting that yet. I'm just speculating, but really the, the penultimate goal other than prevention of this disease, which I would dramatically like to do, it's cure in the front line. Like not only do you live longer, but you don't recur. So you're not on stuff. Right. Uh, and so this sort of disease-free survival, the fraction of women that never recur, um, I think we will see that markedly increase with use of PARP inhibitors in this particular population. So I'm very, very passionate about making sure that people with ovarian cancer and family members know that that is the standard of care. They can choose to not take it. That's shared decision-making. But the standard of care for women with BRCA-associated cancers in the front line is maintenance PARP inhibitor. And there are two PARPs available in this space. I don't really care which one you use, as long as you use one of them. And then you can use it with uh, Avastin as well. There's data for that. So that's pretty exciting. And as that, um, as we get longer follow-up there, I think we'll really get some numbers around cure, which we don't talk about very often, unfortunately, in ovarian cancer. Patients live a long time, usually, um, but they're on therapy for a long time. Yeah. So the opportunity to cure more is, is pretty phenomenal. And I think we're going to see that, but that's only 25% of our population, you know, is, is BRCA. Um, there is this kind of relatively newly identified subgroup of patients whose tumors do not have a BRCA, but for some other reason, and there's many reasons, the tumor struggles to fix its DNA. Right. And so if you hit it with a drug, like a PARP inhibitor, that's how they work. They, they inhibit PARP and PARP is a protein that fixes DNA. So mm -hmm. if you already struggle to fix your DNA, your tumor, and then I take out a key protein, the tumor will die. And so we see about a 50% reduction in the risk of progression um, with PARP inhibitors in that group. And there's a, there's a spectrum, you know, it depends on how, there's some tumors in that category that are really like BRCA, and we actually may cure some of those women. There's other tumors in that spectrum that are, we struggle a little bit to fix their DNA and they benefit some from PARP, but it's not necessarily transformational. And so I think we don't really have that granularity yet, but that's about another 20%. And then you have the 50% who do not have either of those features, and we still have a very high that need to understand why those tumors are really good at fixing themselves when they're treated with anything, chemo or PARP inhibitors or whatever, if they can fix the damage that's caused, they live and they become resistant right. uh, or they recur very quickly. And so that group of, of tumors that are homologous recombination deficiency test negative, there's a lot of tests we said, they're different, but they're kind of overlapping. So if it's negative, doesn't necessarily mean that tumor is not going to respond to platinum. Those aren't perfect tests. And so I really, you know, I counsel patients about that because they get really sad, you know, when they get the test results, they're like, oh, I'm, I'm test negative. That means I'm going to do terrible. No, it doesn't. Mm -hmm. Doesn't. But it does kind of put you in your tumor in a group that I'm more worried about. So, um, and then there's gradations. I have patients that are long-term survivors in that group. So it's not a death sentence. And so I really... These tests aren't perfect, uh, but they do help us identify maybe who needs more therapy. 
So I think the PARP inhibitor story in Frontline is quite important um, and I'm excited about it. Um, and we're kind of doing additional studies to figure out tumors that don't get as much benefit from PARP. Are there things we can add? Uh, there's a lot of things that have been done. My colleague Shannon Weston has done a lot of work with PARP inhibitors and we won kinase inhibitors. So it's very good, it's a little toxic to use as a maintenance that looks pretty effective in tumors that don't respond to PARP alone as one example. Uh, my friend Catherine Fuh has done work um, in mice models with PARP inhibitors and an uh, interesting drug that targets uh, GAS6 and axle ligand. Uh, that, that drug is in studies in a platinum resistant setting right now, but hopefully we'll move it into maybe a um, less responsive ovarian cancer setting like a maintenance setting because that drug actually combines very well with other things. So there's lots of, you know, Fiona Simpkins at Penn, uh, Dr. Simpkins has done a lot of work with ATR inhibitors and PARP inhibitors. They're synergistic, especially in tumors that don't respond well to PARP alone. So there's really quite brilliant, all female, um, my dad, uh, clinician scientists who are really doing a lot of work uh, in animal models, as well as in early phase clinical trials, trying to figure out what kind of combinations are tolerable key uh, and also can maybe fit in this category for tumors that don't respond as well to PARP. So that's a big area of work right now um, that I'm excited about and we're sort of seeing that ramp up. So I think that's one class of things I'm excited about. Um, I think the other class, there's three classes. So things that target DNA damage response, PARP inhibitors, we one kinase inhibitors, Check one, two, there's a drug called um, Prexacertib that Lily made, kind of disappeared for a while. It's coming back uh, under the uh, leadership of Dr. Jenman Lee. I'm excited about that. Um, ATR, I think I said, so that group. Then there are these antibody drug conjugates. So these are like smart bombs or arrows. We don't like the bomb analogy. On the surface of tumor cells, there are proteins that identify it as self. And so that's how they escape immune detection and immune cell death. So you don't wanna target anything to those because then you would hit normal tissue. Mm -hmm. But also on the surface of tumor cells are proteins that are only on the tumor cell or are so overexpressed on the tumor cell as compared to normal cell that if you could target to it, most of your drugs could hit tumor. And there's a lot of these proteins, folate receptor alpha, sodium phosphate transporters, CDH6, HER2, just like breast cancer, mm-hmm. um, mesothelial, I'm forgetting, there's a bunch. So we can target like the arrow to find that target. And then on the feathers of the arrow or the tail of the bomb are highly potent molecules of chemotherapy conjugated. It's not paclitaxel or doxel or gemcitabine. That's not what's conjugated here. They're really, really, really potent chemotherapy drugs. A lot of them work similar to taxol, like they're microtubule toxins. So they hit, you know, when you split a cell, you create that scaffolding to split the cell. If you remember from biology, that scaffolding are microtubules. Mm -hmm. So taxol works by poisoning the microtubules. A lot of these drugs are conjugated with drugs that are also target the microtubules. But others are drugs that work more like carboplatin or topotecan, and they're very potent. And the reason that's important is twofold. One is that we can hit the tumor. The tumor thinks it's a friend because it's binding to its receptor. It's like a Trojan horse, it lets it in, and then it releases the chemo into the cancer cell, but not into your bone marrow or your GI system, or your hair follicles. And so we don't see a lot of hair loss. We don't see a lot of hematologic toxicity um, for a lot of them. You know, we don't see counts dropping. We don't see a lot of neuropathy, um, other sorts of things. They do have toxicities that are a little bit weird. We can talk about that. It's differentiated. Number two is that the reason we dose chemo the way we do is because we increase the dose until we see some efficacy, of course, but also until we hit toxicity. And then we have to bring it back down. So all the drugs we use, we could give more of, and it would probably be more effective. Not all the time. You know, carboplatin is a good example, or that's not true. 
but like Paclitaxel or Topotica, we could get more of it, it would probably be more effective, but it would hurt you like way more than it would help you hurt your other cells. And so there's a limit to how much chemo I can give you, chemo chemo. Sure. But when we do these antibiotic conjugates and we deliver these really highly potent molecules of chemo, I overcome that uh, cap mm -hmm. on how much chemo I can give your whole system because I'm getting it right into the tumor. And so we can see uh, uh, hopefully some more effective and better tolerated delivery of chemo. So these are targeted chemo. Uh, none of them are FDA approved yet for ovaries. A ton of these are FDA approved for other drugs. The one that's closest is mervatuximab sorbetanzine. That's before the FDA now for folate receptor alpha high expressing tumors. There's about 40% of high grade serous ovarian cancer are high. 60% are high to medium. And so you'll see that group lumped in in the next uh, set of trials that's going to open. But the first approval, hopefully, God willing, will be in high. So we'll hear about that in November and then that drug will be available. So we'll be able to start testing tumors to see who is eligible uh, for Mervatuximab, which is really exciting. That'll be the first uh, drug available in ovarian cancer. Uh, Upafitimab is um, the next one up, uh, probably closest in development that one targets sodium phosphate transporters. Uh, that's being led by my, actually my partner who's right next door, Dr. Debbie Richardson. Uh, very different drug, different payload different chemo. So just because they're both antibiotic conjugates, they're different drugs. There's a whole lineup of these in phase one. Uh, some of them require tumor testing. Some of them don't uh, because the tumors, some of the tumors for some of these targets, we know it's there. We don't need to test. Mm -hmm. Some we do. So these are pretty cool and you should be looking for those. And I think the third opportunity is immunotherapy uh, with the caveat that the stuff we've tried so far hasn't worked. Um, Keytruda is a great drug. Fantastic. Optiva, great drug, Infinzi, all of them. Transformational and melanoma and lung and bladder and renal, not transformational and ovary. It has not worked as a single agent. And I actually had the great privilege of leading Imagine 50, which used a tezolizumab in frontline with Avastin. And if the renal cell data applied to ovary, it should have been positive. But that's the message is that ovary is not kidney cancer. It's not lung cancer. So things that work in these other cancers really, really well don't always translate to ovaries. So that was a, uh, we didn't harm people, thankfully, but that was a negative trial. So standard immunotherapies are probably not where we're going to gain traction. Um, and why is that? It's because in order for those to work, your immune system has to recognize the ovary cancer and have created that army of fighter jets to kill it. And they've all been kind of stunned um, or the tumors kind of turn them all off or inactivated them and Keytruda or whatever you're using removes that block so that activated immune system can do what it's supposed to do. But if you don't have an activated immune system, it doesn't work. So the new strategies are trying to get your body to either create those immune cells inside of you. So there's T cell receptor um, targeting drugs right now that are trying to like bring together a tumor and a T cell, T cells and immune cell activate it, make it start popping up all sorts of daughter activated cells. So your own body's creating the immune response um, to fight the cancer. That's one strategy. The other strategy is CAR-T, which is um, chimeric antigen receptor T cells. This is standard of care for leukemias and some lymphomas. Uh, it's curative in those settings. And so we finally moved it into solid tumors. And this is where we uh, have to test, do some testing of your tumor and your blood to see if you have a certain HLA type, which is something you're just born with. Uh, and if your tumor has the protein we're going to be targeting, and the one I'm thinking about is mage. And then we take some blood and find some T cells. There's a few in there that are activated. There's not enough. And then we send it outside your body to a company and they magnify it like to a billion cells. Mm -hmm. And then they call us back and say, Hey, got a billion cells for your patient and we bring them in and give them chemo for five days and lympho deplete all the inactive T cells, take them out. And then we infuse back in this army of T cells. And so those are in clinical trials now. Like super exciting. Uh, and I have it open, so I can't speak to it without revealing confidential things, but uh, we'll see. 
But that's kind of the new strategy for ovary is not trying to reuse what we're doing in lung, but really bringing some newer technologies in and seeing if we can, you know, and that's one, that's a one treatment, right? So you use that and if it works, you just are following someone from there. They're not like on continuous chemo. So I'm pretty excited about that potential, um, but it's in trials. That's why trials are important. So those would be my three categories, I think. That, that's wonderful. Thank you so very much for sharing all these uh, great information with us. So um, I know that our overcomers have quite a few questions when it comes to PARP inhibitors. So I'm just going to ask you a few things about that. So um, we know that PARP continues to change the landscape, as you said, for ovarian cancer. So um, can PARP, however, be used indefinitely? And at what point does it lose its efficacy, you think, uh, according to your expert insights? And when should the uh, toxicity risk versus the benefit be evaluated in making a decision about discontinuation of PARP? And by the, I just want to mention that this is one of the most asked questions we get from our overcomers. Um, so um, any guidance that you, you could provide would be greatly appreciated. So this is something, you know, when we sit around at meetings, I was just at our big NCI sponsored meeting last week. And this is what we talk about um, is duration of treatment. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so a couple of things. Can you use PARP indefinitely? Sure. The better question is, should you? And I think that's where we're, we're struggling. So PARP inhibitors are most appropriate based on our current data. We always have to pivot as we learn things, but based on our current data, PARP inhibitors are most important and most impactful in the front line. Mm -hmm. Which isn't to say if you missed that opportunity and now you're platinum sensitive and you've never seen a PARP, they're very impactful there too. We wanna to use them in the front line and we wanna use them and stop. I'm very passionate about that and I know patients get nervous. There are reasons to continue. Like if you have obvious disease that's being held stable by that PARP inhibitor, then you continue. But that's the same, that's not really maintenance, right? That's treatment. Right. And so if I had somebody that was on carboplatin or paclitaxel or doxel, and they had disease that I could see that I was holding stable for whatever period of time, you know, I'd have a conversation with someone, but I would just continue that. It was, if, if, it, if it was tolerated, because mm -hmm. the alternative is I stop it and the tumor grows. You, know, you can't take a tumor holiday uh, with active disease. It just grows right back, which is a very different paradigm than like sarcomas. Sometimes where you put a sarcoma into kind of a stable disease and it holds, you actually can give these treatment holidays for months uh, and then restart the same drug. It's quite interesting. Um, and that's very much individualized and, and, and done in collaboration with folks who are experts in sarcoma. Ovarian cancer is not like that though. If you have active disease generally and you stop what's holding it stable, it's going to grow. So that's treatment. Right. Maintenance is the setting where I've done a surgery and I've given carboplatin and paclitaxel and I'm starting maintenance usually with little to no evidence of disease. And then I'm using a PARP inhibitor for a prescribed period of time. You use that for a prescribed period of time, two years for Olaparib. And honestly, I use Norapirib just for two years unless there's unless it's an incredibly high clinically risk person, not person, disease. Um, and then I might go to three, but I plan to stop. And I tell my patients that at the beginning. Why do I think that? Because I do think that if you use PARP indefinitely in that setting, some, number one, for patients who have BRCA, we do see a lot of patients not recurring. Uh, you'll see how many in September, but it's not small. So I'm gonna over-treat a lot of patients that do not need to be on PARP forever. And we stop and then they need to enjoy their years. One, two, if I continue it in the group of patients who does recur, and I can tell you in solo one, that's about 50% of patients eventually recur. But they may have recurred years, you know, we stopped at two years, years later. If I had PARP running that whole time, the tumor that grows back versus the tumor that would have grown back had I been three years off of PARP are likely different in terms of 
acquired resistance. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And this is one of the things that we're talking about a lot and we don't know the answer to yet, which is quite frustrating is that if I give two years of CART, hopefully you never recur. That's best case scenario. Two years of PARP and you recur three years later. So you are PARP exposed, your tumor is PARP exposed, but not PARP resistant by our current classification who didn't grow on the PARP versus you continue the PARP for forever. So you're PARP resistant tumor. Mechanistically, early studies would suggest that they're different in terms of acquired resistances, not only to PARP, but there's overlap with resistance mechanisms to platinum. Not complete overlap, but overlap. So there is a concern that if you have a tumor and you just treat it indefinitely, and then it recurs on a PARP, and you're like, oh, well, it's been four years or five years since your last platinum, I'm gonna put you back on platinum. There's a concern that that tumor does not respond as robustly to the platinum as somebody, A, who never had a PARP, but they probably wouldn't have gone five years, right? Or somebody that got two years of PARP and stopped and then progressed later. So that data is starting to emerge from some of the studies, but it's very exploratory because the studies weren't designed to answer that subsequent therapy question in the way we now recognize we would like it answered. So we're having to do what are called exploratory analyses from studies, which are hypothesis generating only, they are not um, definitive. So you have to be real careful. Okay. There's lots of biases when you go back into studies and interpret them in a way that they were not pre-designed to be interpreted. However, that's what we're worried about is are we inducing some resistances that will impact subsequent lines of therapy? So in the front line, I'm very passionate about stopping unless there's evidence that I'm actually controlling active disease. And then I would just continue it like I would any anti-cancer therapy. The harder discussion is in the recurrent setting. So recurrent platinum sensitive tumors, they respond to their platinum and you put them on a PARP. This is where all the PARPs were first approved. And there the treatment was until progression or toxicity. And so many of the studies had patients on for years. Um, and so the concern there is the same. One is, can I stop you in that group? Is there a group that I can treat for two years or three years and they're completely no evidence of disease, can I stop the part and leave them alone and set them up for better responses if they were to recur down the road? We have no clinical data to answer that question, but I will tell you a lot of us are doing it mm -hmm. um, with a lot of conversation with patients. So a lot of my patients do not want to be on PARP inhibitors forever. Some of them do though. So it's a nuanced conversation. So that's one. Two is, um, concern about the development of secondary leukemias. Uh, so we call them treatment-related myeloid neoplasms. So we, you'll hear us say AML, MDS, but there's a whole spectrum of these kind of secondary bone marrow dysplasias and malignancies that can develop because of exposure to chemo itself plus PARP. So it's not like PARP is the one thing I want to emphasize that PARP's not causing this. It's more related to just a cumulative right. PARP, you know, platinum, platinum, platinum. And then a PARP, we're seeing more of these events. So it's about 8%, which is you know, kind of high. So can we predict in whom that's going to happen? Can we reduce that risk if we stop it earlier? All our guesses, right? So I have, I have two follow-up questions. As you were speaking, I was thinking that uh, I've heard a few of the experts on this particular series talk to me about the fact that PARP after PARP does not work. So according to what you just mentioned, that's debatable, right? Mm -hmm. and, and the second thing is 
that uh, if if someone has been on a PARP inhibitor, let's say, as you said, consistently on four years for four years, and then somehow the cancer grows back, there is not much to it. If you switch PARP brands, nothing is going to happen because essentially it is the same product or the same drug that you're giving under different labels, right? So if you switched drugs after four years, it won't really matter in terms of disease management because it's pretty much the same thing under different labels. So could- Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why, just so I understand the context of uh, that question, and then I'll come back to part after part. Uh, so if I have someone on for four years, like platinum sensitive recurrent disease, they're cruising along for four years on Limparza. Why, and under what circumstance would I change them? Like what would be the rationale for changing them that you're at, that, that informs that question? Yeah, no, I was asking that if that didn't work for the patient and the cancer grew ah, back and yeah. then trying to reach no. it with another PARP, that won't work. That's what I'm asking. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. So the PARPs, the three PARPs that are approved in that setting, the recurrent setting, are Rucaparib, Rubraca, Niraparib, Zajula, and Dilaparib, Limparza. I wish we had Telazaparib because it's actually a good part, but we don't. They're different a little bit. You know, they have differences. Uh, and you can see them really most in the what we call preclinical models, like animal models, cell line models. You can see some differences, but it hasn't been evident clinically. So if I have a patient and she's on maintenance, Zijua, and I see things starting to grow, yes. there's no rationale for switching to another part. Right. It's not going to work better. Mm-hmm. Now, a combination might, you know, and that's things that we're thinking about with the emergence of a uh, class of drugs called Pultheta inhibitors or DNA PK inhibitors, they may be a little too toxic to mix, but can you reverse some of the mechanisms of the resistance? We may not be able to, but we are thinking about that. But there's absolutely no rationale for progression to switching to another monotherapy part. There is rationale for toxicity though. I just want to make that point. They have a class effect of toxicities, but patient near the oral. And so we metabolize, as human beings, we metabolize things differently through our livers, first pass metabolism. Right. So some patients will have a terrible time with one part. Mm. Um, but if I feel really strongly it's going to help them, I'll switch them to another part and they can just do fine. Right. So rotation of parts for toxicity can be a smart thing to do. But for progression or efficacy, it's definitely not what I would do. Um so that was one, part after part is very complicated. So my earlier comments about treating in the platinum sensitive space were all related to tumors that are part naive mm-hmm. that day. Um, there's only one study called the Areo study that tested the idea of reusing a PARP inhibitor. And in that study, women with disease that was considered platinum sensitive they had to respond to their platinum again. So they weren't even on the study at this point. They had to respond to platinum and then be randomized. That's when they came on the study to Limparza or placebo. And they were on a prior part. Um, and if you look at the statistics of this study, the reduction in the risk of progression was like 70, well, about 60%, 50 to 60%, depending on BRCA or not BRCA. So that sounds really good. So it's a positive study. And I do want to emphasize that it's a positive study statistically, um, but it's a negative study to me clinically because it just tells me we need new drugs for maintenance in this setting because most of the women who participated in Oreo, just because of when it ran, you know, Solo One wasn't approved at that time. No one was getting frontline heart inhibitors when Oreo was running. So it was all patients who had received PARP inhibitors in the recurrent setting until they progressed. So these were almost entirely tumors that were PARP resistant. Right. Mm -hmm. Then, okay, so that's one thing. Then the tumors had to respond to platinum. What we don't know, and I'm playing armchair quarterback, so I'm not criticizing the study. It was very well done and I'm very proud of it. But could I go back in time and redo it? I would register patients at the time they were platinum sensitive, PARP resistant, platinum sensitive. And I would look at how many responded well enough to come on the trial because we have no idea. That would have been the answer. Like if your tumor is PARP resistant, what's your benefit from platinum? How many of them responded well enough to go into the study? Because I heard from 
from a lot of my colleagues. Susanna Banerjee from Royal Marsden made this comment, and she's a leading international researcher, and her site enrolls a lot of patients to these platinum sensing studies. And she had so much difficulty getting patients on a rail because they weren't responding to the platinum post part. So that's something. And also, these women were really remarkable in that over half of them had seen three or four prior platinums and still were responding. Mm -hmm. So it's a very niche group. For those of you that are in that group, you're very remarkable. We call you kind of unicorns because the expectation is not, unfortunately, that you keep responding to platinum like three and four and five times. But that's who was sort of partitioned out in this array of study. And even then, you have this super kind of responder phenotype that were on the study. And about 50% in either arm progressed at that first disease assessment. So as soon as you stop the platinum and put them on the trial, if they got the PARP or the platinum or the placebo, didn't matter, 50% progressed. And then you started to see this separation where you, there are maybe 20% who got benefit from the second part. So all that to say, I do think PARP after PARP has a role and I've used it. I have a patient right now who's on three years of PARP and was on the NOVA trial like five years ago. And I put her back on it and she's just cruising. Mm -hmm. And the platinum before, I was like, well, I don't have another maintenance for you because there wasn't data from Moreo. So let's just see how you do off. And she went a year before she recurred. And now she's three years. So end of one, you know, we all live by anecdotes sometimes. I do think there's a rule. But that's her. She's four platinums and has responded again. And that patient, I would maybe try it unless I had a better trial. But in general, um, I don't think it is a standard of care. It's not, it's a standard of care. It's not the standard of care. And I think we need to do better and get some more active, tolerable drugs into that space rather than trying to recycle Mm. what we have. So it's a call to action rule. It's a beautiful trial. I'm really proud of it. It's positive, but it was, for me, it was a call to action that we got to do better. Okay. Thank you. Um, so we talked a lot about PARP and just switching gears a little bit into uh, platinum resistant ovarian cancers. What are some of the uh, current or emerging breakthroughs that are happening in this space that our overcomers should know about? And what are still some of the, uh, you mentioned the words unmet needs in platinum resistant. So talk to us a little bit about that as well. Well, we consider when a tumor becomes by definition, and I told you about the you know, cloudiness of these definitions. Mm-hmm. But platinum resistance is a high many. Because unfortunately, if a tumor recurs, at some point it will become resistant to platinum and then I need other things. The good news though is that we have things. And right now, for example, in the US and in Europe, in the developed world, we have the highest prevalence of women with ovarian cancer that we've ever seen, despite a drop in incidence and a drop in mortality. Why is that? Well, it's because we're cobbling together these progression-free survival improvements and keeping women alive longer. I hope we act on that by curing more women. We'll see that as more kind of solo one follow-up comes out and that gets into a more general population. That would be the best thing other than prevention. But until then, it is some good news that we have more women living with ovarian cancer for longer mm-hmm. because we're better at sequencing, we're better at supportive care, and we have active agents. So, but it is a high event need. Because many women will receive many lines of therapy in the platinum-resistant setting. So you don't just need one thing, you need like four things. So you can sort of keep, and then you need to know how to sequence them. So I do think that we're, um, that's a high admit need. There is a lot of activity though um, happening right now in clinical trials. I talked about antiviral conjugates. That first approval, if it comes, which I hope it does for mervituximab, will be in a platinum resistant setting. And then the next clinical trial that's now almost open is in the platinum sensitive setting as a maintenance. To my point earlier, 
let's not reuse PARP. Let's use an antibody drug conjugate as uh, a maintenance. We've done that actually in clinical trials. It works quite well. That's coming to phase three. But the first approval will be in platinum resistant. Same with the ubifitimab program. Um, so those are quite promising. And they are, their activity is irrespective of your tumor's PARP resistance or sensitivity. It doesn't matter. They're going to work just as well across all of those. And that's what we need are drugs like that. Then there's a class of drugs that are particularly, or studies that are particularly looking at trying to build on this PARP-resistant phenotype and, and improve upon it. So we just had a clinical trial open through the MCI. It's led by Panos Constantinopoulos. I mentioned earlier that all these great women researchers, but Panos and Jeff Shapiro are like two of the most brilliant investigators um, at the data for, at, in, in the world, but they're at the data farber. And they generate a lot of beautiful work. So they have a study that just opened that is for women with platinum resistant, PARP resistant ovarian cancer. And it randomizes to standard chemo. So everyone gets, no one gets placebo, chemo versus PARP plus a drug called copanlicid, which is um, uh, what's called a PI3 kinase inhibitor. These are approved in breast cancer but they've never found their niche in gyne cancers because we're so focused on using them biomarker directly. You're trying to use them appropriately. Like you look for PI3 kinase mutations in a tumor and you go, aha, well, that's where this should work. Nope, it did not. But when you use PI3 kinase inhibitors in breast cancers, this is Gerber Wolf's work um, and organ cancer, Connors and Shapiro's, Jeff Shapiro's work, uh, you induce this, it's like a, we call it a metabolic intervention. It doesn't matter if you have a PIK3 mutation in your tumor. By blocking PI3 kinase, you downregulate proteins that are involved in DNA damage repair. So you make a tumor that's become resistant to PARP, so it's good at fixing its DNA again. You've now taken out legs of the stool, so it's not good at fixing its DNA again, and you give it a PARP plus that. Mm-hmm. So it's this combination that's very rational, but interestingly, not biomarker directed. The biomarker is PARP resistant. And he's done phase one work that, were, that looks very effective. And that just opened four tumors that are PARP resistant. So it's super exciting because there's so many patients who desperately need that intervention. We have to prove whether or not it works. So I'm really excited about that. And he also has work um, that's a little bit delayed, unfortunately, um, looking at the drug gemcitabine with an ATR inhibitor um, that does have a biomarker selection. So those are very exciting as well, all platform resistant. Ways to make our PARP work better, but also ways to make our standard chemotherapy drugs that don't have a really high response rate, make them work better longer. So patients get more benefit without more toxicity. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of really exciting activity. There's some novel immune therapies that are being developed. Um, there's an interesting drug uh, called Nemvolucan that's under development with and without pembrolizumab. So coming back to these novel immune therapies, that study is up and running. Uh, I'm so excited about that as well. So there's a lot of categories in the platinum resistant space where there's very smart drug design going on. And not all of it will work. Um, we just had a big trial that we're excited about called the oval trial, which was weekly paclitaxel versus weekly paclitaxel plus this drug called BBL111, which was a gene, kind of a gene therapy, anti-androgenic therapy that, um, had really nice early phase work. We're very excited about it. And it just resulted in a press release that it didn't improve outcomes over paclitaxel alone. Mm -hmm. But the other big take home from that is that we now see the efficacy of weekly paclitaxel alone, which is really quite superior to any other therapy. So it really kind of brings home, that teaches people. You know, when you think about monotherapy chemo options for platinum resistant tumors, we kind of go, well, you can use doxel or gemcitabine or tobutecan, I hate tobutecan, or weekly paclitaxel, and here are the pluses and minuses. And a lot of times patients are like, oh, I don't want to use, lose my hair so I don't want to do weekly paclitaxel, which is fine. That's again, shared decision-making, but you got to understand that that is the most active drug in this space. Mm-hmm. And you should get a cold cap 
you're uncomfortable, but they'll help you keep your hair. And right. so then you can get the most effective therapy and not lose your hair. So I try to, I mean, I think that that, that it was a negative study and we're very sad about that. Um, Cause the company was really a great company and invested in women with ovarian cancer. So I'm disappointed, but you know, make lemonade out of lemons. I think that study will teach a lot of people about what your superior option is. And it's not like this, this, or this, it's, this is your best. And then we go to this next tier and then clinical trials are, are clearly superior to that next tier any day of the week. So um, it was a long answer, sorry, but there's a lot going on that's exciting. I was just thinking that you have so much to offer. We needed to do a three-part series with, with <laughs> not just an hour, but um, the switching gears because you, I mean, it's with with your depth of knowledge and wealth of knowledge, it's very uniquely interesting to me that you also have done some training in hospice and palliative care. Mm -hmm. So uh, it must bring you like a very unique perspective to patient care and understanding the patient inside and out. So tell us more about what our overcomers should know and utilize these advantages that are offered um, by both these forms of um, care, palliative yeah. and hospice, yeah. Yeah, that's an important question. I'm going to be really honest. I, I was trained and trained in palliative and hospice, but I'm also a phase one trialist. And sometimes those are very right difficult um, for me because I always have something I'm excited about in clinical trials. And I get to know women for a long time. You know, I have patients who are very dear to me. And I'm just going to be honest. Sometimes I lose sight of how much someone has changed over the year I've maybe had them in phase one, I do get them in phase one for a year because we have drugs that work. And I'm like, oh, but I have another thing for you. When really I need to be stepping back and going, do you want another thing? Or do you want to switch gears and treat aggressively symptoms and try to keep you at home? You know, we're gonna work hard and start treating. You're not like not treating. We're just not giving you measured poison anymore for your chemo, but we're still treating just for symptoms and quality of life. So I'm not perfect there. There are others who are much better than me. And I think that's why it's nice for me to have partners because we, you know, we see each other's patients. And so I'll get a call from the hospital. It actually, this happened yesterday. My partner's like, do you really think you should be doing this? And I'm like, mm, yeah. Okay. I see what you're saying. Cause you, you have this sort of independent lens that comes in and says, you know, maybe a bypass isn't the best choice here we should just move towards hospice um i think that's what's nice about having a team honestly help i like to take care of my patients but i like having a team and and you get second opinions almost from your team members so i do think that patients um should be aware that palliative care and hospice are not the same they're they're it's like a venn diagram they overlap but you can be on palliative care and still be getting treated palliative care just means that i brought in myself and I often escalate because I have a great supportive care clinic here and they're so amazing for, for management of suffering. Um, not just pain. Uh, I'm pretty good at managing pain, but mental health suffering, financial toxicity leads to suffering uh, more than I think I ever appreciated until recently. The amount of financial toxicity and the stress on the family and things we can do to offset that, how we need to rethink what we're doing, that's part of palliative care, actually, mm -hmm. uh, is paying attention to that and reacting to that so that a, a person who's struggling to live isn't also burdened by this sense that they're going to leave their family bankrupt when they do pass away ultimately. Mm -hmm. That's not something as physicians we've been trained to think about, but fortunately, there are amazing people. Um, the amazing lecture from Memorial Sloan Kettering. Um, uh, uh, who talks about financial toxicity. I'm like, I, I've never really incorporated that until now. And that's really part of palliative care too. Um, nutrition, physical therapy, all of these things are just wound up into really trying to minimize suffering for our patients and for our families. Uh, and I think that we really honestly, so difficult to do that. I'm always amazed by medical oncology, honestly, general medical oncology. I don't know how they keep up. It's, I'm awed by them, truly, not being funny. Mm -hmm. 
And then to like add on these other layers of all the things that are so important. It's just become such a complex world that I don't know that I could ever exist outside of a, a setting like this or in big community practices where you have partners and colleagues that are all kind of attuned to these issues of palli palliation of suffering uh, and have the resources to apply them. Because at a physician level, without that support, it's very difficult to do. It doesn't mean you have you know, a not caring physician. They're just swamped. Nice. But I can send my, my patient to the clinic next door and have my psycho-oncologist or my geroncologist assess and talk to them, and it's a partnership. And that's all part of palliative care, but it's a team. Right. How to like put that into nuggets for community providers to, to do um, is very difficult. And I, my hat is off to them. But I do think we, you know, from a patient standpoint, every once in a while, my patients would just be like, well, you know, what would it look like if I didn't treat? And I'll be like, oh, I, you know, I probably should have brought that up before them. <laughs> it's probably, that was probably a miss on my part of their asking me that question. You know, and then we'll go down that road. But it's okay to ask that is what I would say. Because some of these patients ask me that and I'm like, you know, this is what it would look like. And it's an appropriate time to consider that. And we can have it. Right. It's okay to ask me that this is what it would look like. You know, I have like three other things that actually may really help you. And I'm going to cheerlead a little bit to see, you know, whether or not you're interested in, in trying some things that may actually um, help you live a live longer um, at a cost. And so, so it's a very nuanced conversation. Um, but I think most of us as you know, oncology are very optimistic, probably to a fault. Like you don't go into oncology if you're a pessimist about things Definitely. working and helping people. So I think as a field, we probably don't do a great job of that transition, especially in phase one, where I'm like, ooh, I've got this, I've got this, I've got this. You know, we should consider stopping. And acceptance can feel this very abrupt, like transition and discussion. Um, that I, I wish I were better at. This is a great segue into my next question. And this is more, you know, nothing to do with any clinical um, clinical question, but if you could change tomorrow for our overcomers, what would you do? I would prevent it. I would prevent it. I would, well, number one, I would make sure that 100% of anyone who wanted it to be quite honest could get genetic testing yes. so that we could identify all of the patients with any cancer who have a high penetrance gene like BRCA, but it's also um, RAD51C maybe BRIP1, but BRIP1 is important for other cancers, like identify those, identify all of our patients with Lynch syndrome, um, all of the genetic, like just test. I don't understand why we can't do that. And do risk-reducing strategies so that you're never my patient. But I don't want you to be my patient. I want you to like live your life not recognizing that you ever were at risk for being my patient. I would like to be put out of business. I, I mean, I'm getting tired. want to do some other things. We'll all be fine if cancer goes away tomorrow. Yeah. We would be fine. So if I could do one thing, I would um, I would do that. I would make sure everyone is genetically tested so we could do all. And then I would make sure people got right, the right interpretation. So variant of uncertain significance is not a hyperinterference gene. Do not get a mastectomy for a BRCA BUS, please. So get tested and get appropriate interpretation of those tests and get the appropriate risk-reducing surgery at the appropriate time or testing, screening. There's lots of things. One, two, I would um, move several things and they're all public health-based. I would overcome whatever barriers there are to HPV vaccine. Um, I'm sorry, I know this is ovary, but there's no reason that anyone gets cervical cancer in this state, United States or HPV associated head and neck cancer which are so miserable. I see them in my phase one clinic. I don't see them. They come in my phase one clinic. I see them just in passing. I don't take care of them, of course. Um, but what um, is your talk about suffering? Unreal. And we, there's no need for it. There's no need for it. And it makes me angry that we still see these young people coming in with these, these cancers that are entirely preventable 
globally, but at least in the US, that'd be number two. And then number three, I would uh, come after, and again, this is somewhat relevant to ovary because some of our uh, other histotypes are obesity related, um, breast cancer, endometrial cancer. There are drugs now that um, are very effective at, at um, bringing down weight, either approved for diabetes, like GLP-2, but they're so expensive and the co-pays the co are like out of reach for like my patients. So if we could address the obesity epidemic, epidemic at the right level, which is in kids and in our um, younger women and men yeah. with access to the things that would actually help them. A lot of it we're learning is genetic now. Like it's imprinted. If your mom was obese, it's in the mitochondria and it's passed down maternally. So how do we break that? If we could address that, there's eight cancers that are obesity related that we would markedly decrease in this country just with better access to effective therapies that are not cost prohibitive. So those three things would bring down just the global burden of cancer in our country. I can't even estimate by how much, but there would need to be a lot fewer of us. And, um, and that's what I would do because it's all prevention. Like I love drug development and I love developing things that help women live longer and I'm going to keep doing that. But the, but the real, like we're putting a bandaid on it. The, like what we need to do is prevent. And we're not doing that. I can we have the tools. We don't, I, we're not doing it. I cannot say enough how much I love your passion. And, and I agree with you completely because sometimes when people ask me, what's your vision for overcome in the next 10 years, I'm like to shut it down. That's my, always my answer. Like we don't want to exist after 10 years because we would have found a cure for ovarian cancer. That is my ultimate goal. I mean, that I tell that to everyone who asks me, you know, ask me, what is your vision? I mean, that, that is my vision. It aligns perfectly with what you just said. Thank you so very much, Dr. Moore. This was such a fascinating conversation. It, I feel like, like I said, you need to be back for another two, three, four <laughs> parts so that we can talk to you about more stuff. But in just in closing, um, what message of overcoming would you like to share with all our audience that listening today? Uh, one, number one, thank you for having me. This was fun. Uh, number two, I think I would say we are working very hard at prevention strategies and curative strategies in the front line. Like that's our goal. Um, I think there's sometimes a perception, I hear this a lot here in Oklahoma, that we're just here to like keep people sick and keep treating them to make money. And I just would like to dispel that. Like, I don't know an oncologist who doesn't want to cure more patients, prevent them, cure more patients. So you just come and see me for once a year surveillance. And guess what? I lose money on these visits and that's fine. Fine, fine, fine. We are not doing this to like, there's no conspiracy to keep people sick. Um, I, I, I don't understand why that's so pervasive, maybe because that's where I live. But um, I always like to say that we are so invested in doing things that are going to de-escalate what we have to do to keep you alive for longer and not keep piling on, which is sort of what, what we've done historically. Uh, and the third thing I would say is that finally, Mine's been forgotten for a long time, historically, and we kind of got the leftovers from breasts, and then we tried them in vine. Um, but I think there's been a real shift in the past seven years, eight years, where big pharmaceutical companies are really investing a lot of preclinical um, and clinical work into things that work in the front line, you know, not just things in the second and third and fourth lines really novel drugs that weren't in breast first or in colon first, like things just for us. Uh, and true in endometrial as well, um, and cervical cancer, like we're developing in those spaces drugs just for us, finally. So I'm happy about that shift. And I think it should hopefully give you hope that we're gonna keep coming out with options. I saw a 42 year old yesterday who does not have BRCA. I don't understand why she has high grade serous ovarian cancer. I cannot explain it. She should not have this. It shouldn't be platinum resistant, but it is. Uh, and she's kind of decimated about it. But I gave her like, like, I don't want to overwhelm you, but here's the 15 options that I have for you. And let's pick the top three. And then you pick and we'll roll with it. 
And if it doesn't work, we'll go to this. There's lots of work being done, um, lots of options. If someone's telling you you don't have options, you need to ask for a second opinion. And don't be afraid to ask for a second opinion. If someone's insulted by that, I mean, that's just not someone you should be seeing, honestly. Um, so don't be afraid to reach out uh, and to other places and you know, find out what else is available for you. Sometimes there may be something amazing around the corner that you just don't know about. Thank you so very much, Dr. Moore. This was exceptionally, I mean, I love this conversation with you. And like I said, I feel like we haven't even touched, I mean, 10, you know, probably 10% of what you could offer. So we will certainly would love to bring you back for another episode sometime soon. Thank you so very much. And we, I know I've been in some of those meetings that you guys attend. So I have seen it firsthand, how many hours and endless work and dedication and commitment you have towards the Teal community and, and the endless work that you all are doing so that we can all thrive together. So thank you. And we are all grateful to you for that. So thank you, Dr. Moore, for this uh, fascinating and very, very wonderful discussion. And Overcomers, hope this was beneficial for you. I know that I learned so much from Dr. Moore today. Um, I, I'm pretty sure that you would agree with me. And so please share this video far and wide with anyone who may benefit from all these great insights Dr. Moore shared with us. And we will be uh, back with the next episode of Connect Over Coffee very soon. Until then, you keep overcoming. Thank you and bye. Bye-bye.